All right, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says you can handle it on the top. You can't, but that's what it says. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, but we're going to go through the whole first part of that chapter, starting at verse 1. We're going to do that as we go through it, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us this morning to your word to learn more about your son, Jesus, and we ask that you would give us grace to understand hard teaching. And it's hard not because of what you say, but because our wills aren't easily bent to obedience. We want to listen to our own hearts instead of yours. So we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will enable us to bow our hearts to its authority. Do this for us in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. A few years ago, there was a comedian whose name was Tig Notaro. I know nothing about her other than uh, this one stand-up comedy routine that she did about how terrible her life was. And it got one point, she's speaking about battling cancer and her mother's death and her catching pneumonia and her breakup all in the space of one month. And in the middle of this, what's supposed to be a comedy routine, and having faced all these life-altering events in a very short span of time, she addressed the cliche that God won't give you more than you can handle. And she says, what's nice about all this is you can always rest assured that God never gives you more than you can handle. Never. Never. When you've had it, God goes, all right, that's it. She goes, but I keep picturing God going, you know what? I think she can take a little more. And the angels are standing back going, God, what are you doing? Are you out of your mind? God's like, no, no, no. I really think she can handle this. Why, God? Like, why? I don't know. Trust me on this. She can handle it. She concludes by saying, God is insane, if there at all. And, of course, that was immediately picked up by a number of atheist websites, not just to demonstrate their view there is no God, but to mock Christians essentially for being stupid. And while they were surely wrong on their view of God, they are uncomfortably close with their view of Christians, at least when it comes to this cliché. The idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle is thought by many to be a quote from the Bible. Actually, that statement isn't found in Scripture at all. But the basis for it comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13, our verse for today, which reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And although the word temptation can 
refer to suffering or difficult situations. It's really not the best way to understand it in this context. Here, the context makes it clear that the Apostle Paul is concerned with sin that lures us away from God. And the promise is that every temptation, God will provide a way of escape. Some versions have a way out, which is another way of saying when tempted to sin, there will always be a path for obedience. In other words, we need never fear being trapped by sin. The choice to obey God isn't going to be withheld from us, ever. And besides the context, there's another reason that we shouldn't take 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to mean that God will never give us more than we can handle. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul confesses that God really did give him more than he could handle. In that passage, Paul wrote that his companions were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Doesn't sound like he's handling it very well. Clearly, God brought the apostle and his companions to an end of themselves. And the reason is then explained, Paul goes on, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God really did give Paul more than he could handle. If you go further on, 2 Corinthians 6 mentions afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. And God allowed all these things into his life so that the apostle might learn to trust in him. And I read that and I was like, if God had to do that to get an apostle to learn how to trust in him, What's he got for me? Because I don't think I'm nearly as far along as an apostle. But to suggest that God never gives us more than we can handle is to negate the very circumstances the Bible says are necessary for believers to experience God's grace. As positive as the idea that God never gives us more than we can handle might sound, it actually turns out to be very negative when it's proven wrong. What do those who believe this do when God does give them more than they can handle? How do they learn to trust God when their expectations of God have become so profoundly disappointing? Rather than experience grace, they become confused, bitter, resentful, discouraged, and may end up thinking, God is insane, if there at all. That's the danger presented by false hope. So the popular notion that God will never give us more than we can handle is in reality a blatant lie. He will give us more than we can handle, and he does so for the express purpose of bringing us to an end of ourselves so that we realize our very life, breath, sustaining power comes only from God all the time. So rather than offer the false hope, that God won't give us more than we can handle, we should offer the biblical certainty that God will give us all the grace we need for every trial we face. And the fact of the matter is God intentionally gives us more than we can handle to teach us our own limits, 
to teach us to trust in him that we might experience his grace. And because God gave Paul more than he can handle, the apostle comes to an end of himself and confesses, when I am weak, then I am strong. As long as we're handling life on our own, we think we've got what we need. It's okay, God. It's all good. I got this one. Unless we come to an end of ourselves, we will fail to discover the sufficiency of God's grace. So that's the big picture of the passage. And now that we have that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. In order to reinforce the message of this whole series that context is king, we're going to start reading at verse 1. And very quickly, we're going to discover this text is not really teaching us how to handle the hard things. Uh, Certainly the hard things that arrive in our lives unwanted and unbidden. Rather, all of 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 8 through 11, is teaching us how to handle all the hard things that arrive in our lives precisely because we desperately want them. And we repeatedly beg them to enter in and take up residence in our hearts. You see, this passage is really about the everyday battle that every believer has with idolatry. If you remember from our series on Exodus last year, those of you who were here, idolatry is the great sin of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And lo and behold, we discover that idolatry is the great sin of the church throughout the New Testament. See, the issue here isn't handling hard times. The real issue is handling hard hearts. And even though we don't want to admit it, the truth is, when it comes to you and me, Idolatry is desiring evil. Idolatry is desiring evil, verses 1 through 6. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So the setting is this. Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians about the dangers of being arrogant and overly confident in their ability to resist temptation. Before they came to faith in Christ, many of the Corinthians worshipped idols. They attended popular feasts and festivals celebrated in the temples of the pagan gods. And they ate and drank to excess, participated in all the immorality that was part of Corinth's social world. And Corinth was not necessarily a wonderful place. Take like the worst elements of, you know, Vegas and San Francisco and, you know, some of the hard places around the world and sort of roll them all together and that's Corinth. You know, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And that was their mentality. But now they're Christians and they've got this church and so they're no longer worshiping idols. But they still wanted to be part of the social life. 
So they began to rationalize. They felt as long as they had the proper perspective on idols, that idols were meaningless, they gave themselves freedom to participate in these social activities as long as they didn't succumb to temptation. This is playing with fire, and Paul knows it. And 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11 is his answer to their freedom. He delivers a warning that even though they have freedom in Christ, they have to be careful. They can't use this freedom as an excuse for sin. They can't use this freedom as a license that would cause other people to fall into sin. It's not wise to exercise that freedom in front of other Christians who aren't strong enough to resist temptation. That would be unloving and selfish. And Paul wants them to limit their freedom uh, for the sake of the weaker brother. Then he uses his own life as an example of limiting your freedom for the sake of others. 1 Corinthians 9, he renounces his own rights and his own freedoms for the sake of the gospel. One example is uh, even though he had every right as an apostle to receive financial support from the church, he gave up that right and worked as a tent maker to avoid the criticism of some who felt he was only preaching for money. So Paul limits his own freedom in order to prevent his ministry from being misunderstood, and he does this to win people to Jesus. But apparently the Corinthians are not like that. They're arrogant. They want to push their freedom to the limit and flirt with sin because they thought they were mature enough and strong enough and tough enough to resist the temptation to fall back into their old ways. And so with all this in mind, Paul sets out in chapter 10 to highlight a set of circumstances from the history of Israel and do it in such a way that shows these circumstances are actually very similar to the Corinthian circumstances. The situation that Paul has in mind is the exodus and the events that follow it. And he wants them to see these things so he can make the point, in fact, that the Israelites were the, uh, clearly set apart as God's chosen people, God's special nation. They received all kinds of spiritual and uh, supernatural benefits from God himself and yet we read verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. If you're at all familiar with the history of Israel, you'll know an entire generation was lost. They never made it to the promised land. Their bodies are literally strewn across the wilderness for 40 years as one by one, eventually, they all drop dead. And that's Paul's point. If the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are not spared from God's wrath because of their disobedience, almost all of them were destroyed, what does that say for the Corinthians? And their foolish belief that they're somehow safe from the consequences of their disobedience. Paul very clearly draws for the Corinthians the conclusion uh, from all of this in verse 6. He says, these things took place as an examples uh, for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He could hardly be more blunt. And yet he doesn't stop there. He goes on to give some specific examples of how the Corinthian situation 
uh, is not only similar to the Israelites in terms of their experiences and what they received from God, there were uh, very uh, close parallels between what the Israelites did and what the Corinthians were doing. And if there isn't any repentance, he's essentially saying the results are going to be the same. Because both for the Israelites and for the Corinthians, idolatry is dangerous. Idolatry is dangerous. That's the next blank there. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Start at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Old Testament passage that Paul is quoting from is found in Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. Now, if you remember, it's an account of a time God's people had left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They've gathered at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And they're waiting for Moses, and he's not coming down. It's taken a long time, and they get tired of waiting for Moses. So they assume at some point Moses probably isn't coming back. And they enlist Aaron to make an image of God for them to worship. And Aaron does, and he fashions it in the form of a golden calf. And all the things that Paul might have quoted from, from Exodus 32, he quotes the second half of Exodus 32, 6. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's other parts in that chapter that says they worshipped idols and they were bowing down to golden calves and it's all bad. And he doesn't say that part. He quotes this part. Why? Because of the parallels to the Corinthians. The people of Israel are engaged in blatant idolatry. Eating and drinking in the presence of a golden calf, clearly an idol, among other sins. And God's judgment is great. What are the Corinthians doing? They're insisting on their freedom to eat and drink in an idol temple. And Paul's making a parallel. They did it. Look what happened. You're doing it. Get ready. And he goes on three more times. Uh, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Reference here is to Numbers 25. The people of God engage in immorality with the people of Moab. But if you go back and read that chapter, what's interesting is they had been attending the feasts and festivals and sacrifices to the Moabite gods. And the immorality that they got entangled in and which they got punished for came about because of their involvement at the pagan temples with these feasts and sacrifices. The very same situation the Corinthians are unwilling to let go of. And they insisted it was harmless, that an idol is nothing. And Paul's words here indicate this additional problem. If you're going to get in the habit of going to the feasts and festivals at the pagan idols and the pagan temples then you run the risk, the possibility of getting involved with some sort of sexual immorality. 
And then he adds several more examples. Just real quickly, uh, uh, one's about the uh, uh, time of the serpents came, and there's three other times in Numbers where it talks about them grumbling against God and also against Moses. Every time there's disastrous results, God brings his wrath and judgment against them. Mentions two incidents here, but it really happens four times in numbers. And it's not too difficult to imagine the parallel. You know, the people are annoyed with Paul. They're disagreeing with him. They're grumbling and complaining about it. They resent that they're being asked to give up certain things that apparently are near and dear to their hearts and to be content with what God has provided. So the overall point in verses 1 through 6, Paul is showing them they're not any more special than the Israelites who weren't spared the anger of God when they strayed. And if God didn't hesitate to judge them, why would he hesitate to judge the Corinthians? And then verses 7 to 10, he gives specific examples. The attitudes and actions of the Corinthians are really similar to the attitudes and actions of the Israelites. Why do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? And so he states again, what's the purpose of all these things being recorded in Scripture? And he gets to the point in verses 11 and 12, where we see that idolatry forces us to trust God. Idolatry forces us to trust God. It says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And if we jump to verse 14, it says, therefore, flee from idolatry. And that would make a lot of sense. But somehow in the middle, he drops this verse 13, which seems completely out of place. He's been alerting the Corinthians to all this danger if you continue down this path. And now all of a sudden we have words of comfort to those who are being tempted, which is explicitly referring to the constant temptation to be lured into idolatry. Verse 13 reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's a sudden shift. You have warning after warning, example after example, of the danger of idolatry. And now Paul is reassuring the Corinthians Their situation is not inevitable, nor is it hopeless. He makes it clear their temptations are not unusual, but they're common. They're not extraordinary. They're the same kinds of temptations that are found in every Christian's experience in every time and every place. And not only is their situation not hopeless nor inevitable, it's not taking place in some obscure corner of the universe that somehow is not underneath the watchful eye of a loving creator. God is faithful, he says. He will provide. The promise of divine faithfulness and divine provision in verse 13 
implies the necessity of divine awareness and divine presence. So following this model, God's people today can look at these things and echoes Paul's words in verse 11. These things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction, which means if we're going to be faithful to the text, we need to take heed of the warnings and the encouragements. On one hand, we need to hear Paul's warning about uh, being stubborn and resisting God and ignoring the pull of our consciousness. We need to have great trust in God, simultaneously great distrust of our own hearts, the peril to which our hearts easily lead us. We need to hear how simply numbering ourselves among the people of God doesn't make us immune from the consequences of disobedience. God didn't hesitate to visit his people with wrath and discipline in the past, and he won't hesitate with us. In addition, we have warnings about idolatry. Now, today we don't live in a situation where we're surrounded by huge temples and are invited by every other neighbor or coworker or classmate to attend a feast at one of those things. Maybe if we lived in another country, it'd be that case, but it's not for us. And yet we're no less prone to idolatry than they were. And we surely have no fewer opportunities for idolatry than they had. It's just our temptations and our idolatries come in different packages. What's an idol look like today? If it's not a statue in a temple, what is it? Well, the great preacher, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it this way. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live, and and I would add anything that I feel I can't live without, and on which I depend. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts much of my time and attention, my energy, and my money. John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idol factory. Which, if he's correct, and I think he is, that means this is a problem that each and every person faces. Historically, the major idols of the Western world revolve around money, sex, and power. Biblically, the major idols of the heart revolve around pride, lust, unbelief, and selfishness. I don't know what your idols are but I know that you have them. And I don't know what tempts you, but I know you face temptation. So when your idols show up, what do you do? What do you do with temptation? You know, many today talk not in terms of idolatry, which is a biblical word, but rather they talk in terms of addiction, which is a psychology word, which has now become a healthcare word word. And the whole science and treatment of addiction is fairly complicated and uh, uh, often difficult. And for our purposes, we're just going to consider addiction to be a severe form of idolatry. That is way oversimplifying things, but it's just going to have to do for this morning because we don't have time to really get into it. So when people struggle with idolatry and addiction, 
one of the questions they're not asking is how do I handle it? And telling them in the midst of that struggle that God's going to enable them to handle it when they haven't been handling it so far is in effect telling them apparently God is not enabling them. Or maybe God's just ignoring them. He's forgotten them. Or maybe God doesn't care about them. Or maybe God hates them because it's not getting handled. God's not handling it. God's not enabling them to handle it. It's just getting worse. And they just want it to stop. Struggles with temptations are painful. And our culture provides a false definition of freedom. Freedom is not the absence of temptation. It's the ability to increasingly choose holiness out of love for Christ despite the relentlessness of temptation. To live in freedom from sin usually means facing temptation and the suffering it brings, but your struggle against sin matters to God. The daily decision to die to self and lay your desires on uh, his altar is a sacrifice of obedience that is a delight to the one who loves you. And that's because while God tempts no one, he uses temptations for our good and his glory. So we have to begin to see another way of looking at temptation once we understand that self-effort is a sure way of losing the battle. Fighting temptation with sheer willpower is doomed to failure. There is no solo bootstrap set in the Bible. But by fighting temptation with obedience, brought about by a biblical perspective on temptation, can be an arsenal of great power. And there's three ways God's goodness can be found in the midst of temptation. First, temptation is a battle that should draw us closer to God. It's an opportunity to know God better. The lusts of our heart are masquerading as God. They lure and entice and promise joy, comfort, security, and so on and so forth. And sin offers us what only God can deliver. And in the midst of our struggles with sin, we're invited to see God whom our sin only mimics. So rather than be weighed down in despair, temptation is an invitation to change our focus from whatever that sin issue is, change our focus to God, something better, the wonder of the world to come, pleasures of God we can't even begin to fathom. It should drive us to worship. Second, temptation is a battle that leads to spiritual growth. It should build spiritual muscle. The Christian life is a fight. Many people don't like this part of the Bible, the idea that we're in the midst of a battle. There's a reason we're told to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. Temptation trains us in obedience. The 17th century Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford, he wrote this. I love this. Grace withers without adversary. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. There's no growth in holiness without a fight. If we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, 
We need to battle the temptations that war against our souls. Understand, we are going to arrive in heaven sweaty and caked with blood and dust with the sword still in our hand. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this, but God's ultimate purpose is to fit us for eternity. And he does this through trials and temptations. Scripture repeatedly urges us to see that hardship and afflictions are not proof of God's absence, but demonstrations of his presence. He promises, 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction. I don't know what you've been through, but I've rarely been in affliction, and I thought, well, this is just light and momentary. But that's what the Bible says. And it says it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all uh, comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Peter teaches us the same thing. The apostle writes, 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Father knows your sacrifice of obedience and rejoices in it. He knows when you're denying yourself out of love for Christ. And what seems like those mundane, routine, ordinary moments your suffering against temptation literally has eternal value. Another way to think about this is to remember life is finite. Your days are numbered. And that's an encouragement because it means temptation is finite. Every incident of self-denial, every incident of victory is yours forever. That's one less temptation before God wipes away every tear and the blood and sweat from your brow. It's a battle. Third, temptation's a battle that reveals God's love for us. God meets us in temptation, and as such, we learn to love him more. And that's the glorious promise in today's verse when rightly understood. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One struggler commented, he discovered that Jesus is the way of escape. He found increasing freedom by embracing Christ in the midst of temptation, clinging to his promises and trusting that obedience is better. And that's not abstract theology. Jesus is the way of escape because he knows your pain specifically. Hebrews 2.18, speaking of Jesus, says, "For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And how is he tempted? Lest you think it was any different. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen to that hope. He has suffered the same temptations you experience. Therefore, right in the midst of your battle with temptation, his help is real and substantial. 
knowing that Jesus suffered like you, but did so victoriously as a source of strength and comfort. He alone knows exactly what you need because he alone knows exactly what it takes, having endured the same temptations but without failing. Temptation draws us closer to God like nothing else. And confrontation with our weakness is an invitation to experience his strength, to deepen our relationship with him. And if it's really our goal to build each other up in the faith and prepare each other for those inevitable trials that will come, we shouldn't be pointing to 1 Corinthians 10. I think we should be pointing to 2 Corinthians 12, which was Paul's lesson in the midst of his trial. He says, I pleaded with the Lord. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, but it would not leave me. He called it a thorn in the flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what it's getting across is Jesus is after our hearts. He wants a genuine relationship with us. And if you're like me, you are most open to that when you're humbled and brought to your knees. And that's why for most of us who walk this road, Paul is saying there should be joy. Yes, it's hard. But there should be joy even in the midst of the battle. There's a beautiful picture of the Christian life in Tolkien's uh, The Return of the King, the book, not the movie. In the book, there's a lot of stuff in the book that didn't make it into the movie. So the movie's good. book's better. book's always better. The riders of Rohan travel through the night on secret paths to rescue the city of Minas Tirith, burning and besieged in a sea of innumerable foes. And as they charge into battle, thinking it's almost certain doom, Tolkien writes, they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them. This is God's invitation. We're in a battle, but there's reason for joy and song because in the intensity of the fight, Jesus is with us, and through the struggle gives us more of himself. Look back at verse 13 again, our verse for today. You read those words about God's faithfulness to not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And you read about God providing a way of escape. And you say, yeah, God is faithful, but I'm not. And God provides a way of escape, and I don't take it. But then you remember Christ. Christ, the only person who ever lived, who every single time he was tempted, every time the way of escape was open before him, he took it. And he took it not just for himself, but he took it for every one of his people, for every person he would eventually spill his blood for. He took it because he knew you wouldn't. He took it because he knew you couldn't. And if it were left up to you, there would be no hope. Now, the guy who wrote those words, 
used to be a PCA pastor. And he gave in to temptation. And he gave up and he simply quit fighting. And he fell headlong into gross immorality. And he was deposed by his Presbyterian. He is not a PCA pastor anymore. And his church was and is and remains devastated. And his marriage was destroyed. And somehow I wish he could go back and read his own sermon now. But I don't think he will. Idolatry is dangerous. Now, to be honest, our Lord knows we're not going to stay in our lane 24-7. He is holy and commands us to throw off sin, but the throne he sits on is one of mercy and grace, and therefore he's gracious, receiving us in our desperate need and hearing our cries for help, especially in our brokenness. The most important tool in battling temptation or suffering or emotional pain is knowing Jesus and knowing that he wants you to run to him even when you're at your worst, single or married, man or woman, you need more than behavioral strategies to succeed. You need a growing understanding and trust in Jesus. Now, it's very interesting as I was going through this. What comes just past our passage? It's not part of our text today, but Paul's writing about fighting temptation and battling idolatry and getting in the fight. And then he says, verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul's prescription for fighting idolatry is found in the Lord's Supper. Because it's at this table that we're reminded of what Jesus did for you and for me. We say this table is an ordinary means of grace. It's a means of grace drawing you away from idolatry and temptation and drawing you back to Jesus. The Corinthians were eating and drinking to idolatry. Paul brings us back to the Lord's table in faith and repentance so that here we'll be eating and drinking to Christ. And well past our passage, as I said at the beginning, all of chapter 8 through 11 is about this battle with idolatry. And how does chapter 11 end? We read it to you once a month. Paul finishes his sermon on fighting idolatry by telling us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't go eating and drinking in remembrance of the idols. Eat and drink, remember me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This same Christ looks at you with all your frustration and the awfulness of your sin and perhaps the still greater awfulness of your self-righteousness. And he's determined to love you through it all, to see you endure 
to win and woo your adulterous heart, that heart that keeps running to these other things, that heart that loves its idols, the heart that loves its addictions, the heart that loves its temptations. And yet through all your idolatries, every time you've ever given into temptation has now been forgiven, has now been cleansed, has now been paid for at the cross by him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so for your freedom and your forgiveness, while we were still sinners, while we were still giving in to our idols and our temptations and our addictions, Christ died for us. This Christ comes after you with a love that astounds you and leaves you stunned and speechless and transforms your vain attempt at winning his love into a breathless pursuit of the one whose love for you cannot be extinguished. That's why, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his cross, until he comes, his second coming, is coming again. And that's why when you come to this table, you're coming because the Lord's Supper is God's antidote for idolatry. Take that to heart. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Lord, we ask that you would help us understand what it is that you offer in a text like this. We ask that you would use us so we're able to bring our disorderly desires into some sort of coherent whole, not out of some kind of uh, willpower or stoic stubbornness, because we finally put our heart on the passionate glory of Jesus that will really put our egos and our identity and our feelings and our minds and our wills and our emotions all in their proper place. And knowing that Christ, our great Savior, more and more and more will enable us to endure and to keep on, enable us to finish as he finished. Help us to fix our eyes on him. Grant us correctable hearts and quick repentance, and the grace of the gospel. Bring us to your table as the antidote for idolatry. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.